Well, I'm excited tonight to be with a men's group from Destiny Worship Center, and uh, they uh, meet regularly, uh, weekly, I believe, and uh, they're right now they're studying end times Bible prophecy, and so uh, they reached out and uh, asked if I'd be willing to join them for an evening session and answer some questions, and so I'm always delighted to do that. And so I'm going to turn it over to Philip, who's kind of emceeing their group tonight, and uh, and again, thanks for letting me join you guys, and fire away. Uh, yes, sir. Um, I'm actually going to hand it over to Buzz because he is the, the brains be behind our uh, our group here. So Okay. So uh, <laughs> Okay, Dr. Hickson. So we've got kind of a foundational question here to start with. And it's um just on approaching God's word. How do they, how do we study them? So uh, when reading the word of God, uh, how should that be any interpretation be approach? Uh, especially when it comes to the well all of the scripture, but Okay, so I'm on, uh, you're cutting out on me. I'm only catching like every other word. Is there any way to get closer to the mic? Or all right, sorry about that. Okay, I'm going to say a test sentence here. How does this sound? Oh, much better. Yeah, thank okay. you. Okay, so the first question we have is kind of a, a foundational question to kick off the night. So when we're reading the Word of God, how should that reading, study, and any interpretation be approached? How should we use and view any human written commentaries when we use those for help? And uh, why is it important for the church to know and understand these prophetic scriptures, especially today? Okay, so yeah, that's a great question, kind of multifaceted question. And I'll start with kind of the last question first. Uh, all of scripture should be approached the same way. We don't handle different portions of scripture with different rules of, of hermeneutics. And hermeneutics, of course, is the, the fancy word for what you're talking about, how to study the Bible, a Bible study method. And so uh, we believe the Bible should be understood in the way any normal language is understood, and it's plain, normal, natural, common sense meaning. There's not some mystical meaning. There's not hidden meanings. There's not spiritualized meaning. Uh, when I like to say when the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the Spirit, what did God want to communicate to mankind? And he did that using words. He did that using Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek over a period of 1,500 years. And uh, he was communicating something in normal rules of grammar and syntax and language. And so um, there are some, quite a few, you know, key rules of, of how to study the Bible that uh, I don't know that we want to take the time to get into all of them, but a lot of it just comes down to observation, uh, context, understanding who was writing to whom, uh, when were they writing, what was the occasion, um, uh, you know, looking at the broader context. Um, in my Bible study methods classes, I always remind people the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error. Uh, so you want to you know, make sure you don't pull a verse out of context and build an entire theology on it. Um, so uh, as far as why should we study Bible prophecy or the prophetic portions of scripture, I think is the way you said it. Um, you know, uh, Paul mentioned in the book of Acts that he did not shun to proclaim the whole counsel of God. Uh, God's word is uh, his complete revelation to us. It's comprised of 66 books of the Bible. Uh, it is uh, sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness, according to Peter. And so uh, given the fact that uh, one third of the Bible is prophecy and half of that is yet to be fulfilled, that's about 16 percent. If you ignore end times Bible prophecy, you're ignoring 16 percent of the Bible. And that's not the whole counsel of God. So uh, unfortunately, we live in a day when a lot of people do uh, ignore or shun or have no interest in end times Bible prophecy, but not only should it be a part of any church, you know, study or any pastor that's teaching, he should include that somewhere in the mix. I would even go so far as to say today, given the, the signs of the times and the urgency of the hour, it ought to take priority. It ought to be something that we, we make sure we talk about. Um, so yeah, does that, does that help answer the question? Yes, absolutely. We wanted to, um, well, one of the things I was kind of asking in that was, uh, you know, how should we, I guess, approach human written commentaries on oh, yeah. Yeah. scripture? Um, you know, we use those kind of with, with helps, but obviously you can get a scripture with different views in those commentaries and, you know. 
Yeah. See, so the word of God is the authority, not them. Absolutely. Yeah. Commentaries are not infallible, nor are human authors. Uh, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, I'm, I'm confident there are mistakes in all of my books. You know, I'm, you know, my, it's a, it's a process, a lifelong process of studying the word, going back to it again and again, comparing scripture with scripture. And very often I refine my views or realize I was off base on a certain understanding of a certain passage. And, you know, we're never going to, uh, get it uh, perfect until we get to heaven, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But as far as commentaries, I, I always like to quote, I think it was Augustine who said, never forget the Bible will shed a lot of light on commentaries. So we always want to start with the Bible. And, um, you know, commentaries are just someone else's attempt to do what you're doing when you pick up a Bible. Uh, read it, understand it, explain it, and, and then apply it to your life, which is the ultimate goal of Bible study application. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I would say uh, you want to hesitate to pull for that commentary too quickly, but certainly there are puzzling passages of Scripture where it can help you, um, you know, get started or even come up with a couple of options if you'll look at, you know, commentaries, but not all commentaries are created equal. You want to stick with conservative, dispensational, uh, you know, commentaries written from a literal grammatical historical perspective on studying the Bible. Uh, so, uh, and I have, we have a list at Not By Works that we give out when we teach Bible study methods. And I'd be glad to send that to you guys of, you know, good Bible study resources and authors that, that I think, you know, are genuinely coming from the right perspective. Very cool. Yeah, we've got a uh, got kind of a phrase that we pass around this group. We don't even know where we heard it, but it's uh, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you say that quite a bit when it's there's differing opinions. <laughs> yeah, know, so. yeah. I tell you, I love that. I'm gonna you'll you'll probably hear that in a future podcast. I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> I'm not sure where we heard it, but it's, it floats around. So okay, um, I have this written down in five minutes or less, but. That, that's un unnecessary. Uh, we, a lot of our questions are timeline based. So like in five minutes or less, would you lay out a timeline of the last days and the end times, starting with where we are now? Uh, what is most likely next? Any gap periods? What kicks off the seven year tribulation? Major events of the trib, second coming, millennial reign, yada, yada. Can you give us a timeline of those events? through? Yeah. Our so you mentioned you had my book, What Lies Ahead. Is that right? Yes, I think uh, Patrick is reading yeah. that right now. So I have an appendix at the back of that called Sequential Order of End Times Events. Uh, and so that would be a helpful uh, resource. But as far as starting from where we are today, it's important to understand the distinction in the Bible between the last days and the end times. So the last days is the church age. We are living in the last days and have been for 2,000 years. The end times it re refers to that 16% of unfulfilled prophecy and it starts with the rapture. So the next great prophetic event to which the church looks forward is the rapture. There are no prophecies that have to be fulfilled before that. Um, the rapture is a mystery. It could happen uh, at any moment. It's a mystery, meaning it was un unrevealed in the Old Testament, revealed by Paul in the New Testament. And it, it's imminent, meaning it can happen at any moment. Uh, so uh, as let me talk about the present age first and talk about the setting of the stage. So the stage is definitely being set. That's the whole point of my two books, uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, volume one and two, uh, in which I basically survey the landscape and say, you know, what characteristics of the future Antichrist's reign are we seeing begin to develop or even full into development in this present day? And there are many. It's, it's overwhelming when you begin to look at... Uh, Things like the central bank digital currencies, um, AI, transhumanism, uh, the attacks on gender, and uh, other all kinds of other uh, you know things that 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 the Antichrist is going to uh, do when he takes the throne. So Jesus told us to you know look for the signs of the times. Doesn't mean we can predict a date. Uh, we can't for the rapture, but if we're getting closer to the types of things that will happen during the tribulation, that necessarily means we're getting closer to the rapture, because the rapture comes before the tribulation. Uh, so, and that's indisputable. I know there are a lot of views out there. They're all over the map on that stuff, but if you just consistently handle the Bible from a literal grammatical historical uh, perspective, 
you cannot help but arrive at a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, so rapture will happen next. Uh, then there'll be some a period of unspecified length during which the world is in chaos, uh, kind of reeling from this sudden disappearance of all these uh, Christians. Uh, the Antichrist, I believe, will begin to uh, rise to world fame at that point. Uh, that's where I put the Battle of Gog and Magog from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, and I'm not alone in that by any stretch. Many uh, dispensational teachers put it there as well. Um, and so I believe, as I kind of outline in, in my book, What Lies Ahead, that after the rapture, uh, the this uh, alliance from the north that's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 will come together to try to attack Israel and take advantage of the, the chaos in the world to, to you know, commandeer that land. Um, meanwhile, according to Daniel 11, a Western alliance forms, and that alliance uh, comes in and gets involved in this uh, battle as well. Um, we know from the text in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that God is the one who protects Israel supernaturally, but yet it's my speculation, and that's all it is, that this leader of the Western alliance takes credit for defending Israel against these northern aggressors, um, the land of uh, Magog, and uh, he that kind of catapults him to world fame. People look to him as one who prevented a further escalation, and they look to him as a uh, kind of a broker of peace, and that's when I believe he signs the peace treaty in Daniel 9.27, and that starts the clock ticking on the final seven years. And I believe that leader of the Western Alliance is the man who becomes uh, the Antichrist. So then after that, it's just pretty straightforward in Scripture. You've got the start of the tribulation. A lot of things happen during the tribulation, like the uh, 144,000 Jewish witnesses, the sealed trumpet and bold judgments, the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist sets himself up as God and demands that everybody worship him. Of course, the mark of the beast, the complete... Uh, control grid that they roll out where every human being on earth will have to have government permission to buy or sell. Uh, you've got the two witnesses. You've got ultimately the battle of Armageddon at Christ's second coming. Christ comes back. We come back with him. Uh, Daniel tells us there's about a 75-day period immediately after the second coming prior to the official inauguration of the kingdom. Uh, but the kingdom will eventually be inaugurated a few days after uh, or some days after Christ's return. And that first thousand years of that, we call the millennium. We get that from Revelation chapter 20. And the millennium uh, is time when Christ rules and reigns in perfect peace and justice. Isaiah tells us all the governments will be upon his shoulder. At the end of the thousand years, Satan, and by the way, Satan is put in prison during that time. Uh, at the end of the thousand years, he's let loose for one final battle. At that point, he's cast into the everlasting lake of fire. And God destroys the old earth under the curse of sin, recreates it in a new heavens and new earth, and we continue to worship God in perpetuity. So that's kind of a quick flyby. Well, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. I uh, So you answered about five of our questions within that, so that's great. So this question is from uh, Patrick. It says, does the marriage supper of the Lamb start immediately after the rapture, or is that someplace else? Uh, that's a good question. And I just talked about that. Uh, I think it was Sunday. It might've been last Sunday because we're also going through the end times in our, at Plum Creek Chapel uh, in Sedalia, a suburb of Denver. Uh, and we're doing that on Sunday mornings at nine o'clock in our Bible study time. Uh, we have uh, quite a few people that come out for that, but there are two things that happen after the rapture uh, related to the church. And these happen in heaven. I'm trying to think, I think I have a chapter uh, on this in the uh, book. I guess I don't. Anyway, uh, it's in it's a section of within a chapter. But uh, the marriage of the Lamb and the Bema Judgment both take place in heaven while the tribulation is beginning uh, to take place on earth. So we, we have to be married because the first thing that happens in the kingdom is the marriage supper. That's kind of the kickoff party for the millennium. So when we come back, according to Revelation 19, we're already married. So that marriage ceremony, the marriage of the Lamb, takes place uh, in heaven. Well, did you have something, Patrick? Yeah. Uh, of your book, and uh, 
make these guys a copy of that chart that you placed at the end of the book where you yeah, he you got apparently you got to be right in front of the mic because we're not here. And you right. Yeah, what what I was uh, I, I just wanted to let you know, I've only read the first chapter. You know where you talk about um, looking at biblical scripture and doing it in a logical manner. You know, a progression, the way you described earlier. But uh, the timeline that you provide in the book at the end, um, I'll make these guys a copy of that. I'm the only one that has the book right now, and I've I've only gotten through the first chapter, so. I'll make them a copy. So they've got a timeline to sort of visualize what you've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want, if you remember to email me for that list of Bible resources, I can also send you a PDF of just that uh, sequential order of end times events. Uh, that way you can have a you know clean copy of it. Cool. All right. So this next question is um, about the possible timing of the rebuilding of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Could it be during the church age? Or is it maybe the gap period, or will it definitely be during the tribulation? And I think you mentioned possibly after the Gog Magog War, you know, when um, the Lord sounds like he uh, wipes out a lot of the Muslim forces. So, what about the timing of that Jewish temple? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think really all of the options are plausible uh, or possible, I should say. Uh, it certainly could be built prior to the rapture in the same way that Israel uh, returned to the home or was created a, as a nation state again prior to the rapture. That did not have to happen. You know, the rapture could have happened in 1947 or, 19, or 1847, right? And then God and his sovereignty somehow would have allowed Israel to reconstitute as a nation and preparation for the tribulation. Uh, same thing's true of the temple. It could happen before the rapture. Um, that poses some problems because the site of the temple is partially obstructed by the Dome of the Rock, so that would have to, you know, be resolved. Um, but certainly uh, after the rapture, during that unspecified length of time prior to the official start of the tribulation period is an option. Uh, it could even be that it's, it's built during the first half of the tribulation, because remember, the Antichrist doesn't set himself up as God and take the throne until the midpoint. Um, now, you know, obviously the whole tribulation is Jewish in nature, and the first three and a half years is a time of protection for Israel, at least from the governments. Now, people get confused sometimes uh, when they look at charts that talk about three and a half years of, sometimes you'll see it called peace, I call it protection, and sometimes you'll see it, and then the second half is uh you know, persecution or devastation. Um, by no means is any of the seven-year tribulation going to be peaceful. It's going to be the wrath of God being poured out on mankind, the wrath of Satan coming against mankind to take control of this earth that he's been struggling to get control of for 6,000 years. But as it relates to Israel, the nation, they will not be uh, under attack from any from either the Antichrist or his tyrannical regime or any other nation for that first three and a half year period. Uh, so that's why most people say the temple has to be rebuilt before the tribulation. And I would, I would lean that way pretty strongly, but conceivably they could have some sort of temporary mechanism for fulfilling the feasts and sacrifices and so forth for the first three and a half years while the temple's being built. Um, but, you know, the Bible is not crystal clear on exactly the timing of it, but I think any of the options that uh, we've mentioned would be uh, would be possible. Cool. All right. So uh, we hear plenty about the Antichrist, but not so much about the false prophet. Uh, who is this false prophet? What role does he play? And what might his position be? Like, you know, be it political, religious, gaslighter, yeah. whatever it is. What What is, what? who is this false prophet? Yeah, great question. So the the book of Revelation refers to the Antichrist as the beast, and then it refers to the false prophet, which, as you know, is his second in command, kind of his sidekick. You might think of it in terms of president and vice president. Um, but uh, he the the during the final seven year tribulation, remember that's the climactic moment when Satan is pulling out all the stops to take full control of this earth. And so we see an unholy trinity represented with Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet sort of mimicking the, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, 
you're right. The Historically, you see a lot more people speculating on the identity of the Antichrist. I mean, I'm going back hundreds of years. It's always been a fun thing for people to write about and talk about. Uh, you see comparatively less when it comes to people talking about who might be the false prophet or who his identity is. Um, I think he could, you know, really come from anywhere in terms of, uh, you know, his genealogy or geography. As far as his role, it seems pretty clear from Revelation 13 that he's put in charge of commerce and controlling uh, the economy uh, and by default or by, by extension controlling people because the whole point of the mark of the beast, which he will oversee, is, uh, uh, you know, he is to keep people from buying and selling without government approval. So that gets into things like travel and, you know, in my second volume of Spirit of the Antichrist, I talk a lot about the digital currency and CBDCs and what the World Economic Forum and uh, International Bank for Settlements and so forth uh, are, are doing. And it's just right out of Revelation 13. They're even talking about, you know, using this central bank digital currency and being able to turn it on or off within 10 miles of your home so that you can't travel outside of a certain part. Uh, or if you do, you won't be able to buy gas or buy anything. So I just, I think uh, a big part of the false prophet's role is economic, but you also see, you know, him uh, having some connection. I'd have to look, look at it to refresh my memory, but I'm just working off memory from Revelation. It seems like he sets up these images of the beast, the, the Antichrist, uh, and is causing people to worship the, the Antichrist. So there's some sense in which he plays a role religiously. Uh, but remember, the whole tribulation is going to be a one-world system economically, religiously, and politically. So it's it's one-world government, one-world religion, one-world economy, uh, and I think he's going to be integrally involved in both all three of those. Okay. Uh, Philip's got a question yeah. for you here. So a little, a little off of that, um, so I've heard uh, arguments on both sides about the white horse uh, in Revelation 6, um, speaking about it being the Antichrist. Uh, that's where most most of the positions come that I've heard. Um, and then there's arguments on the other side about uh, Zechariah 6, 1 through 8, um, where it talks about the four chariots, the four horsemen on uh, the chariots. And there's a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of differences. Uh that seems to be one of the, the big arguments I run across. And I, I don't know. I, I just feel like it's if the white horse is not the Antichrist, it would be a mistake to to say he is. Or if he is, it'd be a mistake to, to read it as if he isn't. Yeah. So I'm going to just grab my print Bible because I can get. Yeah, because I can get around in it a little easier. Um, plus, I like to see you guys on talking to you. And if I go off the screen to my digital Bible, then I can't see. And I don't know if you're laughing at me or making fun of me or whatever. <laughs> um, but, so I, first of all, I emphatically believe that uh, Revelation 6 is the introduction, verse 1, verse 2 actually is the introduction to the Antichrist. I think that is clear um, just in terms of God, understanding God's plan of the ages and looking at it systematically. But it's also clear from a literary perspective in the flow of thought of Revelation uh, so I don't know if you've seen my chart on the book of Revelation. I can send that to you as well. I'm pretty sure it's in the What Lies Ahead book, but if not, I'll send it to you. Either way, I can send it to you. But you know, Revelation starts with the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse in chapter one. Then you have the letters to the churches in chapters two and three. Then you have chapters four and five, which set the stage for the coming wrath of God. It's called a theodicy, a, a justification. For, for God to do what he's about to do. It's kind of like, what gives God the right to do this? You know, who is worthy to open the seals of God's wrath? Well, the lamb is worthy because he shed his blood. So that's chapters four and five. And then chapters six, all the way to 19 are the tribulation period. And you've got the seal trumpet and bold judgments. Um, and what's interesting is that section that, that covers seven years, you know, the bulk of revelation covers a seven year period, you know, uh, and it, it starts if you understand it correctly, with the Antichrist, and that's why it says in chapter 6, verse 2, 
Um, Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And so that's exactly what the Antichrist does from the beginning of the tribulation. And then uh, here's where the literary uh, observation kind of comes into play. You get to the end in chapter 19 when Christ comes back, and here's another white horse. Verse 11, now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. But notice what he's called. He is called faithful and true. So the first rider on the white horse was the imposter. The second one that comes up at the end of the seven years is the real deal, the Christ himself. So I just think it it really creates all sorts of problems theologically and exegetically in the flow of thought here to to make the rider on the white horse in, in, in uh, Revelation 6 Christ. But I, I know people who hold that view. Um, I just strongly disagree. Yeah. Yeah. But that uh, that being said, um, the one who gives him the crown, if if in that view, would that be Satan gives the Antichrist the crown? Um, it, let's see. He just, you know, uh, I don't know that that would be Satan directly. Um, it just says a crown was given to him. In other words, he's put he, he's coronated as the one world leader. He's put in charge of the world. And I think that goes back to my speculation about Daniel 11 and, and Daniel 9, 27 and the Gog and Magog battle. I think what happens is he rises to, to, to prominence and then the world looks at him as their savior. And so they anoint him king of the world. And yes, ultimately it's Satan uh, as opposed to not being God. But I don't know that we would, I don't know that it would be correct to think of it in terms of physically Satan himself, the prince of demons coming down and, and putting it on. But it, I think it's at his behest for sure. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And, that was, and I was going to look real quick, bear with me, because uh, I think, I think I just, I talked about this just recently, uh, but I'm getting old and my mind is not as... Yeah, so the crown that's given to him in Revelation 6 is Stephanos, which is a crown that you get from competing, like, you know, you, you have to win it. Uh, the crown that Christ has in Revelation 19 is a diadem, which is a crown by virtue of your office. Now, at another point in Revelation, the Antichrist is said, you know, to have a diadem, but that's because he is thinking of himself as the ruler. So I'm not suggesting that the term diadem is a technical term and can only apply to Christ, but I am saying it is interesting that at the start of the tribulation, uh, you have the Antichrist not getting a diadem, but getting a Stephanos, the other word for crown, and that's that's not the one by virtue, you know, that, that you have the rightful heir uh, to. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, Revelation 13 is where we're told that the Antichrist has a diadem. But again, it's 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 just interesting to me that not only is there a contrast between the first writer and the second writer, but there's a contrast in the terms used between the crowns that they're wearing. All right, I'm going to send you back. All right, Pastor JB, uh, we're told... In scriptures, there will eventually be a global religion in the end times, and you just mentioned it a few minutes ago. Uh, what might this be in your speculation? You think it's going to be like environmental, worship of self, some type of new ageism, combination of things? Yeah, I talk about that in uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2. Uh, the One of the last chapters is on the spirit of pluralism. And the one world religion has to be pluralism because there's no logical way that we can conceive that any one religion is going to get all the others to come over. Uh, so I don't think, you know, it's going to be Islam or, you know, Buddhism or uh, anything like that. I think the Antichrist, Daniel tells us he's going to deny the gods of his fathers, which indicates that he is probably of no religion, uh, meaning he's every religion. So I think if in, in a word, the one world religion is pluralistic. And, and as I, as I state in the, the new book, the spirit of the Antichrist volume two that just came out, we see all kinds of things happening across the globe right now, clearly setting the stage for a cooperative effort between 
Islam, Judaism, you know, Catholicism, you name it. So uh, I think it's going to be uh, pluralism. Uh, several passages of scripture, there's um, there's the regathering of Israel mentioned uh, into their homeland. Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37. Um, some scholars say that this is a uh, scripture fulfilled starting in 1948. Others say it is yet to come. Uh, what is your take on this and why? And that's a great question. And I, I, I am glad you asked that. Um, so first of all, you are correct throughout the old Testament prophecies. There's a repeated promise that is eschatological in nature that Israel will be regathered into the land. Jesus himself tells us more, gives us more details about how that will happen when in the Olivet Discourse, the night before he was betrayed and ultimately uh, ends up on the cross, he's, he talks about the signs that will accompany his return to establish the kingdom. And he says uh, in Matthew 24, 30, now this is Christ himself talking, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming of the, on the clouds with, of heaven with great power and glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, that's Israel, from the four winds of heaven, for, from one end of heaven to the other. So uh, that, you know, you see, you mentioned a few there, uh, also Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, Isaiah 27, verse 13, uh, Ezekiel 37. So some people uh, definitely think that uh, the 1948 was the beginning of that fulfillment. I, again, dis disagree very strenuously to that. Um, uh, the, the promise of Scripture for the regathering of Israel is, as Jesus just described, supernatural. It's not going to be organic. It's going to be supernatural. Not to say there wouldn't already be some believers during the tribulation making their way back. There will be. Uh, but after the abomination of desolation, they're going to head for the hills. They're going to flee. And they're going to be, they would be taking their lives into their own hands if they stayed in Jerusalem. So what Jesus describes is a supernatural regathering where the angels physically pick up and bring back and deposit into the land God's uh, believing remnant of Israel. Now, another thing to consider in this is Paul, in, in the great section of Romans chapters 9 through 11, answers the question, too, about when will they get the promised land? The, and he says, ultimately, at the end in chapter 11 there, when the deliverer comes out of Zion, that's when they'll get it. Um, but notice in chapter 10, he makes it very clear that Israel will not get delivered into the land until they first believe. So individual faith has to precede national deliverance. People completely misunderstand Romans 10. Uh, he quotes Joel 2 there, which is a second coming passage in Romans 10, 13. Uh, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Um, people quote that as a eternal salvation passage. It's not. Nobody gets to heaven because they call on the name of the Lord. You get to heaven because you believe in Jesus who died and rose again for your sins. And, the, and Paul is quoting Joel 2.32. Going back to your first question of the night, anytime you see a New Testament author quoting an Old Testament passage, you ought to go back and look at the Old Testament context. And clearly in Joel 2, it's second coming. It's the coming to inaugurate the kingdom. So what Paul is saying there is that his heart's desire is for the nation of Israel to be delivered into the kingdom. But before they can be delivered in the kingdom, they have to call on the name of the Lord. And before they can call on the name of the Lord, they must first believe. That's why he says, for how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? So uh, they haven't believed. They rejected him the first time. The second time around, they will, many, not all, there will be some Jews that take the mark of the beast, but, but many will believe. And having believed, then they will be supernaturally regathered into the land. So I, I just talked about this Sunday. Someone asked me a question about Genesis 12 in our, in our Bible study. Um, and uh, you can, you know, all of our Bible studies are online. But, you know, I don't think that Israel is there in belief today. Um, if, from my perspective, hypothetically, I don't think this would ever happen. But just theologically, it would not shake my theology one bit if Israel ceased to exist again for another thousand years. Because that, that they didn't have to come back to the land before the rapture. Now, 
obviously I think that's a part of the setting of the stage. And I think, uh, you know, if you, if you ask me for my opinion on it, I would strongly say, no, this was prophetically significant. It's not a fulfillment, but it's definitely setting the stage. And I expect Israel to remain a nation right up till the rapture, but um, it doesn't fit uh, the description. When you take all of scripture as a whole and compare them all of the mechanics of that return, uh, it's it's got to they got to believe first of all Israel certainly is not in belief today. There are Jewish believers in Israel, but as a nation, they're not believing. Um, so uh, so yeah, I, I hope hope that helps clarify somewhat. Uh, you know, I understand how easy it is to see, you know, 1948 in the dry bones prophecy, but that's an example of of looking at current events first and trying to then fit them into scripture. I just don't see it. I, I, I think, uh, you know, the bones have not started to come back to life yet, and they, they won't do that until Christ comes back. So in uh, 1 Timothy 4.1, amongst other places, the scripture tells us that in latter times, apostasy would increase and false teachers would emerge teaching, teaching doctrines of demons. Is this happening now or is this speaking of a future time? And uh, what, in your opinion, are the greatest threats facing the church today, specifically the American church? Uh, lastly, what are some of the greatest blind spots the church today here in America has? Uh, you know, where, where are our ears tickled the most and where are we mostly watering down the word? Okay, great that was, question. That was like a three-part question. Is that, did that all make sense? Yeah, that makes great sense. And they're all three excellent questions. So I'm going to start with the first one from 1 Timothy 4, but make sure I answer all of them because I won't remember them, but I have an I have something I'd like to say about each of those questions. So 1 Timothy 4, 1, in the latter times. Now, remember I said last days refers to the present church age. We know that, you know, from directly from the text, for example, Hebrews chapter 1 says, in verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So these are the last days. But in, in 1 Timothy 4, 1, he uses a slightly different word, latter time. So I believe he's referring to uh, the sort of the end of the last days, the, the last part of the last days. So that's another reason why I believe we can see this as a sign of the times. Now, spiritual apostasy is somewhat subjective uh, because there's been spiritual apostasy for 2000 years. But when you look at the whole, the world as a whole, it just seems like Christianity uh, clearly has been uh, getting further and further away from the Lord, from orthodoxy, from the Bible uh, and so forth. So I definitely believe he's talking about, or we're seeing this happen right now. Um, clearly Satan is the great deceiver. I talk about that in spirit of the antichrist volume one with the spirit of pretense and people are giving heed to deceiving spirits and they're giving heed to doctrines of demons. Demons are part of the Luciferian conspiracy with Satan, demons and human accomplices that are all working together as Psalm two describes to take over this world. So I think the first Timothy four, one is essentially the, uh, the description of the church today. Um, as far as uh, one of the biggest blind spots in the church today, I think that's the gospel. You know, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says Satan has been blinding men's hearts to the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, everyone who believes it. Uh, if you can if you can distort or confuse or, um, you know, mix up the gospel, uh, you're going to, you know, go a long way toward keeping people from getting saved. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated. And he can accomplish both of those goals with a, a muddy gospel or a messed up gospel. So the church today seems to have no regard uh, for the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. In fact, Not By Works Ministries, we started in 1999 specifically because of that burden. The first book I ever wrote 20 years ago uh, was Getting the Gospel Wrong. And I talk about in the subtitle, by the way, which a lot of people miss of that book was the evangelical crisis no one is talking about. And I and it, I was prompted to write that book because I was traveling and speaking at conferences. And as I would sit in the green room waiting for my time to come on stage, there would be someone speaking and they would give a, a terrible gospel message, you know, that was not biblical. 
and the crowd would just cl chat, clap and cheer and amen. And then the next guy would come out and, and he would give a totally different gospel message with anyone with half a brain could see that they're contradictory. Yet the crowd would still clap and cheer like they had no uh, discernment whatsoever about the difference between the two gospels that were being presented. And in that case, they were both wrong. So uh, I think the biggest blind spot is this, you know, social gospel, this sense that, well, you know, you just got to be good or be nice and you got to let you in. Uh, you know, the gospel is is quite simple. You can state it in 10 words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And if you believe that, you're saved. If you don't, you're not saved. And according to uh, what Jesus said in John 8, 24, if you don't believe, you're going to die in your sins. So uh, I think that's the biggest blind spot today. Um, what was the second question in that uh, three questions? Uh, just, I think I was asking, um, what is your opinion of the greatest threats facing the church today, specifically oh, yeah. here in America? Yeah, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, biblical ignorance and you know being deceived i mean we saw that in with the uh the pandemic you know how for the first time since constantine 90 percent plus of churches in america we'll just talk about america since that was the context of your question uh rolled over and worshiped uh, you know at the altar of government they stopped worshiping they let the government tell them when they could hold services what they could sing what they had to wear where they could sit where they could stand the whole thing and uh you know it, it was shameful frankly uh and i think the luciferians who rolled that out i talk about that in chapter nine of volume one it was clearly a, a pre-planned thing in the works for 22 years but uh they they were shocked at how easily conservative christians rolled over uh, and it, in fact, as I talk about in volume two, it helped, it caused them to accelerate their timeline because they, it went far better than they could have ever expected. All they got to do is say boo and everybody just runs for cover. So uh, I think the church is, needs, uh, it's, 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 you know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, as Santayana said. And I think, you know, what happened in World War II with Germany, we're seeing repeated. People are, you know, Christians were, you know, asleep at the wheel then. And the ones that did wake up were late to the game. And we're seeing that happen now. Um, uh, so I think the church needs to remember who who they're accountable to first and foremost, um, uh, you know, and, uh, and, you know, be willing to make the hard sacrifices that the early church did when you go all the way back to Peter and John, Paul and Silas and, and others where they said, we're not going to obey man, we're going to obey God. And if that means being arrested or suffering well that's okay you know uh, christians have suffered unspeakable persecution and martyrdom for two thousand years and the church in america is pretty well spoiled yeah, I, this is kind of a sidebar question just piggybacking on that so like just in your opinion what do you think like the um the percentage of the church if if the last day if we are the last day's church and uh we had to be like the first day, you know, the first of the church age, I mean, what percentage of people would even show up, do you think? Like, in my opinion, it'd probably be 20% of what's there now, maybe. I think it's less. So I I was asked this question by uh, at an event I did with David Fiorazzo from Stand Up For The Truth, and he took more of your, your you know, gut feeling. And again, we're just speculating. We don't know. But my feeling is right now, probably 95% of the church is apostate. Um, and I know that sounds cynical and judgmental and all that. I get it. I, I understand that I could be wrong, but I've just, you know, I've had too broad of a exposure. You know, we, we've been in 50, all 50 states multiple times. I don't know, well over a thousand churches. And I've just, and then with Not By Works Ministries, we, we, we interact with people in different settings, uh, radio, TV. And I just, it saddens me how easily duped Christians are. They yeah. just, uh, you basically, they, 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 they're mind controlled, if you want to be on, honest about it. And, you know, the quote that I often give from Mark Twain, it's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. So once they've been trapped in Satan's deceptive world, it's, it's hard to convince them otherwise, you know? Okay. Going back into Revelation here, Revelation 13, 16 mentions the mark of the beast. Is there any insight as to why those who choose the mark can no longer attain salvation? 
Yeah, so that's uh, something that a lot of people who don't really understand uh, eschatology and its literal, grammatical, historical presentation in Scripture, they 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 just have a confusing view of the end times. They they have taken a descriptive passage and made it prescriptive, and so they've been they they're focusing on the fact if you take the mark of the beast, you're going to hell, and if you don't, you're going to heaven. Well, that ignores the whole counsel of God, which makes it plain from Genesis to Revelation that the one and only way anyone gets into heaven is by faith. So Revelation 13, 16 is not suggesting that these people who go to hell do so because they took the mark of the beast. It's just saying that those who take the mark of the beast are going to hell. Uh, it's very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 or Ephesians 5 or Galatians 5, where he's describing the unrighteous and he gives a whole litany of the kinds of behavior that the the unrighteous, meaning positionally unrighteous, unjustified, we might say. Uh, and then he says, you know, those who do such will not inherit the kingdom. It's not because they do such, it's because they're unrighteous. So, uh, you know, this is one of those tensions between God's sovereignty and man's free will. Um, all we know, we see the end result from God's perspective. No believer will take the mark of the beast. And only unbelievers will take the mark of the beast. But it's conceivable that an unbeliever might also, for personal reasons, you know, not take the mark of the beast. I know a lot of people that aren't Christians. That's one of the, the real uh, driving passions behind these two books that I wrote this year was that I touch on so many topics that people have, you know, awakened uh, to that are not believers. And so they'll read because they're frustrated about, you know, the vaccine or the masks or the, you know, the pandemic, or they're frustrated about our freedoms or uh, the cancel culture and all these things, but they may not be believers. So by reading my books, hopefully the spirit of God will, because the gospel is all through them. And I have a specific epilogue at the back of each one that clearly proclaims the gospel. Hopefully the spirit of God will convict them and they'll, you know, they'll be saved. But I think, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people don't, uh, you know, don't, uh, may not know the Lord, but they might still resist government tyranny. And so I think it's conceivable during the tribulation, you'll see even unbelievers resist the mark. But according to God's word, you know, you won't see any believers take the mark. Um, as to why that is, I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Uh, this is another question from, uh, from Patrick. Uh, do all who accept Jesus during the tribulation eventually die during the tribulation? No. Uh, in fact, we can say that with 100% certainty because there have, has to be believers left on earth when Christ comes back in order to populate the kingdom on earth. So if all believers died, then that would mean there are no believers left in their physical mortal bodies to procreate and, and populate the kingdom. So remember, when Jesus comes back, um, the church, the bride of Christ, is already in our glorified bodies. And and. So we will be ruling and reigning and serving in the kingdom. Uh, but Jesus, for those that are on the earth at the time he comes back, those that survive the tribulation, uh, he separates them into two categories, sheep and goats. And what does he say to the sheep? Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. So uh, there has to be believers who survive the kingdom. And that's what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 24, I think it's 13, he who endures to the end will be saved. He's not talking there about personal salvation, eternal salvation. He's talking in the context of the tribulation. Anyone who survives to the end will be delivered into the kingdom. So, yeah, not all believers will die for sure. Okay. There's another one from Patrick. What becomes of those who never accept Jesus as Savior during and by the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ? What becomes of those who don't accept Christ during the millennium? Yes. So they will appear as all unbelievers will before the great white throne judgment. And they will end up in the lake of fire with the antichrist, the false prophet and Satan himself. Okay. Uh, so there are lots of different opinions of where and who mystery Babylon is. Some say it will be literally where Babylon was in ancient times. Others say it's called mystery because it's yet to be understood uh, it's really just the spirit of babylon of old that will functioning at that place any insight on this 
Yeah. So it's not called mystery because it's confusing or because of what you just said. Some people say the term mystery in scripture means something previously unrevealed that is now being revealed. So it's kind of just the opposite. The fact that it's a mystery, basically God is saying, I'm telling you something new. I'm giving you more information. So it's the, the I believe that Babylon, it, it, literal Babylon is going to be rebuilt. And I believe that the, the spirit of Babylon is and and sometimes it's used this way throughout Scripture, Old Testament and in Revelation, uh, refers to the the Antichrist system. So I think you've got three outposts for the Antichrist's regime. Uh, all of them Babylon in a sense. You've got geographic Babylon, which would be like the the actual headquarters of the Antichrist. You've got religious Babylon, which will most likely be Rome, and then you've got uh, financial uh, Babylon, which will most, if the rapture were to happen today and the United States is still around, would probably be New York City. New York City is the financial mecca for the entire world. So uh, it's kind of like when when the president of the United States travels, wherever he is, you know, that's, that's POTUS. You know, he could be at Camp David, he could be on Air Force One, or he could be in the Oval Office. That's still, he's still in control. So I think you've got a political slash geographic Babylon, you know, in, in Iraq, but then I think you've got uh, the, uh, you know, religious and, and financial component to it as well. Uh, but the there has to be a literal Babylon to for it to be destroyed. And that's what happens at the end of the uh, tribulation. Okay, one of our last questions here. Uh, Revelation 18, 22-23 mentions the word sorcery and speaking of mystery Babylon. Uh, for by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. This makes me extremely curious what this is because the word search shows that the word sorcery is pharmakia, where we get our, looks like we get our word pharmacy. This begs a lot of questions on uh, what this Babylon will be involved in. Uh, what are they peddling to the nations and how or what is it deceiving people? Is this like a specific product? What is your insight on this? No, that's great. Yeah, I talk about that pretty extensively in chapter nine of Spirit of the Antichrist, volume one. So you're right. The Greek word translated sorcery is the Greek word pharmakia, and it is the etymological root of pharmacy, pharmaceutical, that our English word. Um, but going back to its original usage, it meant the types of potions and chemicals that, that, uh, alchemists and sorcerers and witches would use to, uh, you know, cast spells and to uh, do things to, to people. So uh, it very much, I think, is relevant to what we see happening today. Remember, uh, we have become very dependent on pharmaceuticals, but in the grand scheme of human history, that's only been the last hundred years or so. The Rockefellers in the early, you know, turn of the 20th century completely changed intentionally at, at the behest of Satan, the entire medicine medical process. And that's why they call it Western medicine. Uh, and so we went from holistic medicine and, and you know, thinking about cures to just drugging everybody. And that's by design. And I think it's gotten worse and worse and worse. I outlined this in, in, in the book about uh, the, even just childhood vaccinations. In my lifetime, we've seen an exponential rise in those. So that's all by design. So yes, I think Satan is definitely, through the Antichrist, going to control people or attempt to control them in the tribulation period using chemicals. Um, and I think he's already doing that. We have hundreds, literally, of examples of the government using chemical, our government using chemicals on, on unwitting citizens and military personnel to try to experiment on them and to try to get them uh, under control. So uh, sorcery is, uh, you know, a real thing. It's part of the dark side, part of Satan's agenda. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's no, it, it should be self-evident to everybody that uh, some of these drugs are, are very, very, very dangerous. Well, I've got uh, one more question written down here. Unless someone else has something. Uh, Revelation 16, 15. Uh, is in in red letter Bibles. It's in uh, red, stating the words of Jesus, uh, stating as he did in other places. Behold, I am as a thief in the night. Is this specific scripture reminding us of his soon appearing in rapture, or is this being said in a in reference to his second coming? 
It's definitely in reference to the second coming. Uh, Jesus uses the same analogy in the Olivet Discourse, remember, uh, because the deception is going to be so great during that seven-year period that even though theoretically the Jews ought to be able to calculate the time of Christ's return, roughly seven years after the start of the tribulation, uh, there will be still people that are deceived. That's why Jesus used the illustration of Noah. You know, Noah was out there building this ark and warning people, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, and everybody turned a deaf ear and ignored it. And so the floods came and swept them all away in judgment and, and destroyed them all, as Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. So I think the same thing is true in the second coming. Uh, you know, the Bible ends, by the way, with that phrase, Jesus saying something very similar, uh, behold, I am coming quickly. Revelation 22, 12, and he says the same thing again in almost the last verse, verse 20, surely I'm coming quickly. Quickly there doesn't mean soon, it means suddenly. So when it happens, it'll happen like that, and it'll start with the rapture with the in the twinkling of an eye, but at the same time, at the end of the seven years, it's people are going to be completely unprepared for it. It'll be seven years of chaos for sure, but don't forget the power of deception and satan has said or jesus said repeatedly in in that olivet discourse be not deceived be, be careful that no one deceives you he uses you know the caution against deception at four or five times so it'll be a time of unprecedented deception second timothy 3 13 says that deception is getting worse and worse and worse so uh, it'll reach its worst level during the tribulation period and uh people will uh you know, will be caught off guard. Um, and that's why Jesus says in, in the passage you quoted, you know, blessed is he who watches, right? Uh, so I think that's definitely second coming. Uh, and it's it comes right in the context of the bold judgments. And remember, the bold judgments happen in the final 72 hours or so of the tribulation. They're all related to the battle of Armageddon, pre preparation for Armageddon, and then Christ comes back. So. Yeah, it's interesting to me how often um, Jesus said, you know, do not be deceived and, and spoke of deception as being kind of like the greatest of things in those last days. And to me personally, just in my own experience, like that's what I see a lot. And that's what kind of breaks my heart for today is seeing how deceived the church is. There's people I grew up with for decades going to church with who in the last couple of years, you would think they never stepped foot into church before just on their opinions, what they support. And it's, it, it really, it, it just grieves me on like a, just a massive level to see this kind of deception. We're not seeing uh, eschatology taught from the pulpits. We're not seeing um, biblical uh, principles being taught from the pulpits. It's all this feel good. You have the power to do this. You have the power within you. And it's, oh, it's yeah. so steeped in self and uh, hardly even crack open the Bible. And um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um you know, uh, but this, even that, like all of Bible prophecy and the setting of the stage that we see, it's got its, you know, sort of concerning element and we, we, we grieve, like you said, but it should also delight us because even that's a fulfillment of prophecy. Remember, Peter said in Second Peter 3, you know, people will say in the last days that scoffers will come and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? So they're not only ignoring Bible prophecy, as you said, but they're they're scoffing at it. They're making fun of it, and they're making fun of people like me who are out there preaching it and teaching it because they oh that who cares you know I'm just a pan millennialist it'll all pan out in the end and they love to use that joke. Well, they're going to be held accountable if they're even believers. They're going to be held accountable those pastors and teachers someday for not warning their people, for not being a watchman, for not sounding the alarm. Uh, and, you know, you said 80%. Again, I say it's more like 95% are asleep. Paul Paul said, uh, I just did a podcast on this last uh, last week, I think it was. Uh, I called it Darkness is Falling. But Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, um, he said, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Uh, we're not of the dark that, that that we should be caught off guard. I think... Um, it, it, they're, they are so deceived. It, it's, it's hard to believe. And the other thing is Satan uses fear as a tool of deception. So fear is not of the Lord. Uh, you know, fear is clearly of the, of the devil. And, you know, it doesn't take much, as we saw with the pandemic, to get people to give up all their rights 
and you know wear useless masks that are just you know so patently disproven i i showed this in in the video series i did on spirit of the antichrist but also i talk about in the book how prior to the pandemic there were all kinds of medical journals and stuff out there scientifically peer-reviewed articles talking about how masks will not prevent against a sars virus uh in fact they can be counterproductive and yet suddenly it all switched on a dime we suddenly changed our view after a hundred some of them went back a hundred years by the way hundred years later now we're suddenly saying no 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 you got to wear this mask you know it's just it's just you get people afraid they'll do anything but i i hear you i hear the i i uh relate to that grief that you're feeling it's it's a sad day to think about my grand you know daughter growing up you know in this in this world if the lord doesn't come back <laughs> cool but well, we're through our questions here unless anybody's got anything yeah definitely appreciate you uh stopping by oh you bet boy i, I i'm so grateful man you guys ask some great questions i hope it gave you some food for thought but don't take my word for anything you know, get in the word and study it and come to your own conclusion and uh uh and i'm i'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity to dialogue with you Thank you, and we're uh, going to look forward to reading the volume two. <laughs> awesome. Have you gotten Have you gotten a copy yet? Uh, I've not gotten a copy. I've just gotten through volume one. Um, I actually have the tab open in my computer <laughs> on, on volume two right now. Yeah. Well, good. Well, it's uh, it's God's using it. I mean, we're uh, we're seeing people literally all over the world, four different countries besides the U.S. now, and uh, forty seven states. So it's only been out a month, but it's already been. Uh, purchased in 47 states we still need people in the northeast vermont maine and delaware if you know anybody in those states tell them to buy the book so isn't joe biden from delaware yeah <laughs> yeah well that's funny uh yeah well thank you guys so much and uh i would love to do it again if you have other questions feel free to reach out anytime and uh i'm going to stop the recording here for our podcast and then we'll say goodbye off air